I remember when my family immigrated to Canada over 20 years ago, when we were trying to find housing, so we stayed with relatives. Even at that time, I remember my parents talking about making their names sound more white for, for the housing applications. I remember them talking about, you know, do you know this person who doesn't have an accent that they could be a reference for us? As people moved out, it unfortunately developed into a space that felt quite unsafe. It got to the point where there were nights where I actually slept outside in a playground instead of going home to going home to that dynamic. Not to get into such great detail, but there was always a man, and I don't mean a boy, I mean a man who would offer me a place to stay. And when I got there, it would be, they, they would want me to do certain things or make me feel uncomfortable. And I didn't like having to stay at these people's houses, but I didn't really have a safer place to go. I really noticed that there was a lot of things that I still really struggled with that other people didn't seem to. Um, especially financially, getting out of poverty, having a good job, those kind of things, right? Um, again, I really struggled in that area and never attributed it to housing and secure housing until I had it. And then I realized what a difference it made in my life. I'm an older Caucasian white person with a lot of privilege, but I, I've lost a lot over my life. So I have a bit of a story to tell you about how that all happened. But I'm in um, uh, subsidized housing in downtown Toronto, and I want to tell you, tell you and the listeners just how important that is for people like myself and others. Welcome to She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. My name is Andrea Reimer, and I was elected to Vancouver City Council from 2008 to 2018. I teach about power and policy at the University of British Columbia. I'm a longtime community activist living in Vancouver, and I will be your host for this podcast, which is brought to you by the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. Most Canadians now know there is a national housing crisis, whether because it's touched your own life or because advocates have finally gotten the attention of governments and a national debate on how to address the housing crisis dominates headlines. Much less well discussed, however, is how to provide solutions for those who have been made most vulnerable by the housing crisis. Over the next eight episodes, we'll look at the reality facing households led by women and gender diverse people in this housing crisis by talking to experts, both the academic experts and the women and gender diverse people whose expertise comes from lived experience of surviving precarious housing and homelessness. We'll also look at solutions and what governments and housing providers need to do to make room in housing for women and gender diverse people. But first, I'd like to introduce you to the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. This is Janice Abbott, longtime advocate for safer housing for women, gender diverse people, and their families. She's a former CEO of one of the largest housing providers for women-led households in Canada and is one of the founders of the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. I asked her to tell me a bit about how the network came together and what her hopes are for the work of the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. 
it would have been probably 2016 uh, and I was at Habitat and Keto uh, and um, got an opportunity to have a glass of wine with uh, Evan Siddell, who was then the CEO of CMHC. Um, and I started talking about uh, how much um, women's organizations had missed being able to get together and talk with each other and plan together and strategize together over the course of the Stephen Harper government, when funding for women's organizations was um, greatly reduced, if not eliminated, um, and that we really missed that opportunity to be in the same room with each other. And um, and especially to talk about housing, because the housing crisis was really starting to take off. I mean, the housing affordability was an issue in 2016. It's gotten uh, significantly more acute since, obviously. But, you know, we thought, you know, good opportunity to share best practices, to share our common struggles and just learn and work and be together. And for some reason, Evan thought that was an idea that CMHC could support. The next step was to try and get together uh, a group of women from across the country who could plan for the symposium. And that was mostly just through um, networking, reaching out to women I knew in Toronto and asking who they knew in Nova Scotia and who they knew in uh, Yukon, Yukon, Whitehorse, Yellowknife, and just trying to get get together um, women. And it was mostly at that time women from organizations or women's organizations, because that's kind of who the network reached out to. But we all felt fairly strongly really early on that we needed to have um, the voice of women with lived expertise in the room. So from what initially started as a group of women who worked for women's organizations, we started adding in women who were um, unaffiliated, I guess. So women who had lived expertise. Um, and we made a really conscious effort at the first symposium and, and actually all since that we had a really good mix of women with lived expertise, women who work for women's organizations um, and women who reflected the diversity of women in all our glory. So that includes transgender women, um, non-binary uh, folks, So uh, and also really paying attention to being inclusive. I also asked Janice if things have changed over the years that she's been doing her advocacy and frontline housing work and what her hope is for the future of housing for women and gender diverse people. Someone was asking me this question the other day, and it's really hard to um, talk about what's better um, when we're in the midst of such an acute housing crisis um, and the, the moral despair, the moral suffering we all feel when we have women knocking on our doors constantly looking for housing and we have no housing to offer them. Uh, you know, a really tough time for all of us earlier this year when we had this brand new building, 83 units in Port Coquitlam. Um, and we started getting inquiry after inquiry. And by the time we had kind of counted them all up, there were eight, you know, more than more than 870 inquiries for 83 units of housing. And you're in your and women are telling you their stories because they feel if they tell you their stories, they're going to you know, get to the top. They're doing what they need to do to feel like they can kind of make it to the top of the pile. And you're reading these stories and you're realizing I don't have enough housing. We don't have enough housing for all these women. And so, so it's hard to talk about what's gotten better when this is the environment that we're working in right now. I'm sure things have gotten better. Um, I just, it's just hard to know what they are because, because um, the housing shortage is just so profound. So, uh, yeah, my my um, my hope for the future of the Pan Canadian Boys for Women's Housing is that we are able to provide enough women all across this country. Um, with the support um, and training and capacity that they need to um, speak in their communities, to speak at the 
sort of grassroots, municipal, provincial, federal levels, nothing happens without numbers. And so if we have a little a little or a big army of women across the country who are raising um, these issues in a way where they feel confident and emboldened and passionate, that I hope can start to change stuff. And, and that's what I'm hoping that we'll be able to do here is, um, is create these army of women and gender diverse people across the country who are giving politicians and change makers a hard time. This is She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. Let's dive in. I've been working on this She, They, Us campaign for several months now, putting on webinars, engaging with housing providers and housing advocates, helping to create training materials and holding training sessions. And through it all, I've been talking to women and gender diverse people across the country experiencing the failure of housing policy. You heard some of their voices at the beginning of this episode, and you'll hear a lot more of them in the coming episodes. But for this first episode, I really wanted to start with a reality check on the scale of impact on women and gender diverse people created by the housing crisis that Canada has been in for more than half a decade now. That question turns out to be much more complicated than you'd think it would be. The housing crisis has been dominating headlines, public policy debates, social media, and backyard barbecues in Canada for a while now. You don't have to spend too much time in that debate to realize that everyone has a different solution for the housing crisis. And with a little more time, you realize that most of the reason for that goes back to the fact that no one really talks about what the housing crisis is. So that's problem one. Problem two is that even if you do understand the housing crisis, Women and gender diverse people are virtually invisible, at least in the ways that we have traditionally counted the people we consider to be in a housing crisis. To better understand all this, I contacted Nathan Loster at the Department of Sociology at UBC. Nathan is a widely published researcher and author on issues related to housing and homelessness. I first met Nathan when I was on Vancouver City Council and always found him to have a great ability to make the complex issues in housing simpler for people to understand. I started my conversation with Nathan by asking him what we mean by a housing crisis, and his answer is both interesting and a little surprising. So what do we mean when we talk about housing crisis in Canada? Um, It depends uh, to some extent on who it is who's doing the talking. In general, uh, most people are on board with understanding that there is a housing shortage in Canada these days. Um, that is that we don't have enough housing in the places that people want to live. And as a result, uh, that's really hurting people who um, either A, are renters, or B, are looking to start their own household. But at the same time, it's potentially benefiting people who are already property owners. Um, because their properties tend to go up in value in those same places where we don't have enough housing. So if the housing crisis isn't actually a crisis for everyone, then who is it a crisis for? As you noted, I mentioned uh, renters and uh, people who are looking to form their own household as groups who are particularly affected by this. But another group that is especially affected by the lack of options available to people who need to move in a hurry 
is people who have faced domestic violence and, and need to find someplace new to live. So that is another fundamental group who most acutely feels the lack of options in our current housing markets and in our current uh, non-market housing as well. To me, this all sounds like a giant game of musical chairs. If you own a chair and you can decide when you're going to leave it, you're totally fine. But if you don't own a chair and someone else decides when you have to go looking for one, it's hard for everyone in that position, but especially hard for those who might have disabilities, who don't get to choose when they leave their housing, so don't get to choose when they're looking for housing, or who might have children or other dependents in tow, and as a result, can't move as fast when the music stops in the housing game. I put this hypothesis to Nathan. Absolutely. And musical chairs is a great analogy. It's an analogy that increasingly a lot of people within the housing world have been turning to to better get across what happens. Most of the time, most people aren't even playing musical chairs. That is, most people are just sitting in their chair. Um, but everyone who does need to move, and and there is a surprising portion of people who do move on a pretty regular basis, um, everyone who does need to move are the people who end up playing that game. When they play a game of musical chairs, the people who win are the ones that are able to spend the most money um, in terms of the market housing. And that means people who can't keep up with that spending tend to lose out. And if there's not other non-market ways for them to gain access, they end up without that housing at all. If people living in poverty are more likely to be in housing crisis, then I need to better understand how likely women and gender diverse people are to be living in poverty. It's time to bring in another expert. Meet Rowan Burge. My name is Rowan Burge, um, and I'm the provincial director of the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition, and I use she and they pronouns. I asked Rowan if she could explain a little bit about what the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition is. Yeah, the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition is a coalition of about 80 organizations that come together to advocate for poverty reduction and eradication across BC. So we look at things like poverty, homelessness, and inequality and inequities across British Columbia um, and advocate for a targeted um, comprehensive poverty reduction strategy with the ultimate goal of eliminating poverty entirely in British Columbia. And our work is also grounded in the foundation of the universal human rights as well. I asked Rowan if women and gender diverse people experience poverty differently than men. Yeah, women and gender diverse folks do experience much higher rates of poverty in Canada and in BC, and also the depth of poverty that people are experiencing is more significant. And so I think that's one that comes up quite a lot in our work. Um, there's different systemic barriers for women and gender diverse and gender non-conforming folks. You know, I think it'd be impossible to have a conversation about this without talking about gender-based violence. It's such a pervasive part and so sort of structurally embedded into our culture at this point that, you know, many women and queer folks and trans folks are fleeing violence in their homes, and that leads to much higher rates of homelessness. Um, and then there's also different barriers that women experience. For example, uh, many women, because of traditional gender roles, are more likely to be put in charge of things like having to secure childcare, figuring out, you know, food and medication for their children, um, doing things like enrolling their kids in school programs, like all of this kind of gendered labor still tends to fall into, you know, sort of women's women's laps and, and people who don't fit traditional gender roles as well, um, which then sort of leads to the sort of continual issue of women carrying on so much more labor for so much less pay. A lot of times women, because they're responsible for things like childcare in their household and family, might have more precarious working situations or unreliable work because they have to work around kids' daycare schedules and things like that, whereas men traditionally don't. Um, and of course, not to say that 
you know, that's the case in all situations, but that tends to be the pattern. Um, and so then the other issue is that women also still have uh, less income than men across the board. Um, and so that also means that um, women have less money and less resources than men, um, than cisgender men often do, and so have less access to resources across the board, higher rates of poverty, and more likelihood to fall into housing precarity um, and homelessness as well. So how does this all fit into housing, especially housing for women and gender diverse people? Yeah, so for folks living in poverty, housing is a major issue. Like when we speak with folks with lived experience, that's the number one thing that they identify right now is the housing crisis and affordability and how that all ties together. Like for many single low income families, for example, which are largely women and gender diverse folks, um, they have one income and often multiple dependents. And so trying to find a two or three bedroom apartment is extremely unaffordable um, for anyone. But if you're living in poverty already, it's it's a huge barrier for folks. Um, there's also the issue of, you know, sort of the lack of funding for transition homes and for women-based shelter services. There's much less beds available for women. Um, and there's a lot of violence that is experienced in the shelter sector that is experienced particularly by women because it's often gender-based. And so there's, there's a few different things at play, but, you know, the lack of access to affordable housing is a huge one. And then the lack of access to adequate housing is another really important one. Like, you know, we find that many families are living with, you know, many small children in a studio apartment that should have more rooms or things like that, because people just can't afford a better living situation for themselves and for their families. Um, and because it's often a low income, um, you know, the poverty line is quite low. And, you know, things like the um, income and disability assistance rates are still far below the poverty line. Like right now, the shelter rate just increased with the 2023 budget, but it's still now at only $500 a month. And that's completely out of line with actual market housing costs. Um, and so just completely insurmountable for many folks that are experiencing poverty, especially women um, and gender diverse folks. So if women and gender diverse people are much more likely to be living in poverty and people living in poverty are much more likely to be in housing crisis, it stands to reason that the problem of homelessness and precarious housing for women and gender-diverse people should be very obvious, and yet it's not. Rowan explains. Yeah, hidden homelessness is a challenging one because it's so difficult to measure and to understand because so often these folks aren't self-reporting as homeless or precariously housed. It's much more difficult to measure precarity than it is to measure street-based homelessness, for example, or like people accessing shelter beds. But women are much less likely to access shelter beds and access kind of emergency housing options. And I will say as someone who's worked in the shelter system, like I worked in a heat shelter where it was 60 men and two women, and it was just completely unsafe for those women. So I see why <laughs> folks would not want to access that space. Um, and the same, you know, I think we talk about hidden homelessness in the context of queer folks as well, because so many, you know, like young trans, two-spirit, um, queer people uh, leave their homes because of violence they're experiencing because of their identities. And so it's very, very challenging for them to also access things like shelter beds, things like transition housing, um, because there isn't really queer specific um, or many safe options for, you know, gender, people who are experiencing gender-based violence to have safe shelter spaces or housing. Um, and so that hidden homelessness piece is really important. I would say, you know, Stats Canada, the last I checked, Stats Canada named um, housing is the biggest reason that people go back to abusive relationships, um, especially like people with small children um, who are fleeing violence often go back to their abusive partner because of the lack of housing that they're experiencing. And, and so that's, a, I think, a huge indicator that this is a massive problem that probably many, many people are experiencing, though you know, I couldn't tell you what the actual numbers are because, you know, it's so difficult to measure these kinds of marginal spaces. But I think it is like a massive issue that's impacting many, many households. Time to bring in another expert. 
So my name is Alina McKay, um, and I'm the research manager for the Balanced Supply of Housing node, and I have um, a PhD in housing, I guess, uh, from the School of Population and Public Health. So my thesis really focused on uh, supportive housing. I asked Alina what the impact of the housing crisis has been on women and gender diverse people, and if there's any way that we can quantify that. So um, women and gender diverse people are really disproportionately impacted. And we can get a bit of a snapshot of that from BC Society of Transition Houses, uh, most recent 24 hour point in time count. So their point in time count actually happened between November 30th and de- December 1st, and it was with 94 transition houses in BC. And at that time, they were able to find that about 1,501 people were sheltered or supported by transition houses and transition housing programs across British Columbia. Um, but we all, they also found that 201 people were waiting for services or turned away from these programs. So this just is right a very simple count of how many people out there actually need um, services for transition houses and showing that there is uh, that that need is over and above what is currently available. Um, it, it also we also know that transition houses really don't give us a full picture of the um, housing needs of women and gender diverse folks. So. The right most transition housing is really meant for women that are facing gender-based violence, but there's so many women and families across this province of British Columbia that really, um, you know, are are facing precarious housing because they can't pay their rent or because um, they're. We just know that this problem is so much bigger than transition houses. Um, so that well, that point in time count really gives us a good sense of like where there's you know desperate need we also know that there's a greater need across the province for better services yeah and once again that those 201 people that were turned away that that was be- primarily because there just wasn't beds for them right so where are those people sleeping often they're going to a friend's house to couch surf or they're going to um you know worst case scenario probably sleeping in a park or something like that so this really just is a the tip of the iceberg when we think about the need for women and gender diverse folks. Victoria? Meet Victoria Barclay. She works with Alina. My name is Victoria Barclay, and I'm a Master of Arts student in the Department of Sociology, soon to be a master's graduate. And I support the finding rooms for family study that Alina leads. And then my uh, master's thesis is also about um, the housing experiences of uh, Indigenous Black and women of color who are fleeing gender-based violence in Vancouver and Toronto. Victoria clarifies that while we do have some numbers, it's not a complete picture and that the situation is likely much worse than point in time counts are showing. I just want to, before I say um, something more, I just want to um, add on to what Alina already touched on, which is that when we talk about homelessness statistics, women's homelessness statistics, it does not tell the full story at all because there's just so much hidden issues that statistics and surveys just don't uh, capture. Um, So we really have to be aware and cautious when we're talking about these numbers to know that this is not the whole story. This is only a small part of it. And homelessness, women's homelessness looks in looks in so many ways that we just can't quantify. And um, a lot of the qualitative work also helps with complementing that. But some of the work that we've done for the findings for family study um, on logistic, which use logistic regression to look at the 2018 Canadian housing survey that that quantitative work shows that women-led households are more likely to be unsuitable, unsuitably housed. And when we look at um, race and how that interacts with um, women's homelessness, we also see um, different numbers. So 
women who identify as non-white are more likely to be unsuitably housed. But again, when we look at statistics um, and quantitative information, it doesn't tell the full story, not just about the homelessness, but also about the identity intersections that we see. So we don't have the full story about um, how many Indigenous women are experiencing housing precarity, how many Black women are experiencing housing precarity, how many um, immigrant refugee women of color, how they're experiencing um, those issues. Um, because they're just not fully captured in that um, in the statistics and the way that it's collected. I ask Alina and Victoria, why is it so challenging to get a complete picture of the housing crisis for women and gender diverse people? And I also ask them if the same challenges exist to get a complete picture of the men who are homeless. Their answer is not surprising. We have a general understanding of who is homeless across Canada. Um, And many of those people are single men. And like Victoria was pointing to in her answer um, around, um, you know, like statistics, just not doing a great job of enumerating women is where it's more difficult to actually capture women's experiences of homelessness is that often women experience hidden forms of homelessness. So that can be um, hidden homelessness includes uh, sleeping in your car Um, sleeping on a friend's couch, um, you know, like staying at a resource center and and where you're not really being captured. Um, So we did, we know that women are, you know, like less likely to experience those visible forms of homelessness where they're staying at a shelter or staying um, in a, you know, an encampment or something like that. Um, so that's where this sort of undercounting of women often occurs. And like, like we talked about, it's really difficult to actually enumerate, um, someone that is staying at a friend's and maybe like doesn't have another place to go. And that really came up in our interviews for the, um, finding rooms for family study. Um, when women lost their housing, they would often couch surf at friends, um, around, right. And they, would be bouncing from sort of one friend's house to a next. Um, Maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a parent, but like all too often that um, welcome, you know, fades um, and that person really is without any housing. Um, The one piece in British Columbia that I think we get right when we're looking at women's homelessness is we do include women who are staying in transition housing as homelessness, homeless, because really, right, if you're in a shelter bed, you do not have another place to go, you are without a home. Um, So we are when we when we are enumerating the number of women who are experiencing homelessness in BC, we are actually counting women staying in shelter as homeless. Some places, uh, if you're staying in a shelter, um, a transition house, you're considered housed, which, you know, is very problematic, because that is a right that has a, a window where that stay is going to be maybe 30 days, maybe 60 days, maybe it's a year, but there is an end date to that where you no longer have housing. And we know that um, given the levels of unaffordability across Canada, um, all too often women are either returning to the home where they that they had pre- previously fed, fled, going into housing where they're incredibly cr- precariously housed, where they just can't afford their housing, or they're going into um, sort of, you know, another shelter situation as well, which would continuing to be homeless. My next and last stop is Carolyn Weitzman. My name is Carolyn Weitzman. I'm a housing and social policy consultant. 
Uh, I'm on my own now after 20 years of being a professor of urban planning at the University of Melbourne. So most of my work is with the Housing Assessment Resource Tools Project, which is actually based at UBC in Vancouver. But I also do work for the Federal Housing Advocate uh, and a number of other organizations all around housing policy. Carolyn is a towering figure in the world of women and cities. In addition to her work as a consultant and policy advisor and the 20 years she spent as a professor of urban planning at the University of Melbourne, she worked for the City of Toronto from 1989 to 1999, developing integrated policy to prevent gender-based violence, and has written, co-written, or edited five books and over 50 chapters, articles, and papers related to the right to the city. I wanted to understand why counting women and gender diverse people is so hard. I asked her what she would say to policymakers to help them see how substantially women and gender diverse people are bearing the weight of the housing crisis. First off, I'd say that that there isn't very good information yet on gender diversity and housing. And there certainly isn't a very good analysis at the sort of numerical sense of 2SLGBTQ plus folks and housing, because StatsCan is backing in very slowly about asking some basic questions about people's gender and sexual identity. So it was just this current census that a question was asked about gender. It's still working its way out as a good question. And although there are questions about same-sex relationships, there isn't a question about sexuality. And although I do like qualitative research and I do like storytelling and I believe that the voices of lived experience are invaluable, it's also useful to have numbers at hand so that you can monitor the progress of programs. People who aren't counted don't count. And it's really important to be able to count gender diverse people and also look at the issues of lesbian, non-binary uh, people, etc. when you're looking at access to housing. So I just sort of put that out there to start with. But if I was asked some basic things about women and gender diverse people in relation to housing, I'd say, did you know that 40% of households are um uh, led by women and gender diverse people, and that those households are three times as likely to be in core housing need. Um, only 14% of uh, women, because that's a question that was asked, who exit um, violence against women shelters are able to find adequate housing. And that creates this horrific dynamic where women quite often uh, lose their children or gender diverse people lose their children because they don't have adequate housing. And then they can't find big enough housing because they aren't living with their children. And that's, it's just so unimaginably cruel. I'd also say that in the 70s and 80s, when um, uh, nonprofit housing was about 10% of total housing construction in Canada, there were a lot of really exciting and innovative projects that were led by women for women. Um, and that there's so much beauty in city building that can happen and has happened in places like Vienna when women's 
needs and rights and perspectives are taken seriously. Carolyn has a lot more to say, but you will have to wait until our next episode when we will hear from her and also from the women and gender diverse people who are on the front lines of the housing crisis. Thank you for joining us today for this reality check on the state of housing for households led by women and gender diverse people in Canada. This is She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. You can visit the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing webpage to learn more about the campaign, find resources from this episode, and add your voice to the army of women and gender diverse people fighting to make room in housing.